Hi there, and welcome back to the Four Pearls Almanac. I'm your host, Andy, and today we have one of our first, possibly our first repeat guest, Peter Gelderlos. Since we spoke last year, he's written a book titled The Solutions Are Already Here, Strategies for Ecological Solutions from Below, published by Pluto Press. The book highlights the shortfalls of capitalism in finding solutions for climate change and points to hundreds of examples of resistance across the globe while diving deep into various examples which we can view to find new tools for resistance. Fair warning, we had some internet issues during the interview, so I apologize if any of the episode seems a little disjointed or if there are moments of poor sound quality. We were able to figure it out eventually. You can find Peter on Twitter and his book is available at most places online. I'm sure y'all will enjoy this conversation. I always walk away from talking with Peter feeling inspired, and I'm sure you will too. Peter, thanks so much for taking some time to chat. Folks hopefully are familiar with you at this point. You've been on before, but uh, we're here to talk about one of your books today. So I don't know if you could uh, just tell us a quick little snippet about your book and maybe a little bit why you decided it was important to write. So the, the yeah, my latest book is The Solutions Are Already Here. And obviously, it's it's not a surprising position to think that climate change or the ecological crisis are really large and urgent problems. And it's also not uh, not that uncommon these days, uh, once again, to be to be critical of or totally opposed to capitalism. Something that has very much been worrying me, aside from all of just just the horribly devastating effects of of capitalism. Uh, on human society and and on the life systems of the planet and and all the other living things on the planet is that the way we're being taught to understand the ecological crisis and to respond to it is designed to save capitalism and to reinforce capitalism and many of the the traditional methods on the left for understanding and confronting capitalism don't really get to the root of it and and allow capitalism to constantly renew itself. And so I felt like there was an urgent need to show how these are these are completely entangled, intertwined issues and and intertwined fights. And we need to understand them and take them on in a way that that gets to the root of the problem rather than allowing capitalism once again to uh, to renew itself. On, I mean, you know, on the on the backs of of all of our labor, on the the graves of all of the species going extinct, all of of the people and the other the other living beings that are that are being killed in the millions, um, it it really is distressing how not just you know the NGOs that are making millions of dollars off of it, but many many sincere people who actually want to try to respond to these problems are doing so in a way that. Uh, that stabilizes those problems, that entrenches those problems, and that allows those problems to uh, continue to exist and to, to project themselves into the future. I think that's pretty accurate. I guess when I actually picked up your book to rewind a little bit, I, I had actually expected something very different. I was thinking that the book was going to be focused more on models of what resiliency looks like in terms of sustainable living, I guess more of a a utopian perspective on the the tools that we need. And you do dip into it at the end, but you really start the conversation focused on exactly what you're talking about, which is how the language we use and how we think about the crisis we're facing is really framed within a language which perpetuates itself. Things you talk about particularly is this idea of the ecological collapse that we're facing is conflated with the the concept of climate change. And that's through a very measurable statistic of carbon. 
So I think when we look at like climate change, we think about carbon and we think about how do we fix this one particular problem as though we can isolate a piece of the complex science around us into something that's consumable or we can you know, buy our way or reduce our way out of this one particular thing and all of the other pieces are just going to fall into place. One of the things that I think is really interesting about the book is how you discuss how capitalism basically utilizes the climate change situation in a way that it can basically create it as a commodity, whether it's through things like carbon footprint or how it, it basically tries to find reductionist ways to tackling the climate change issue and also separating climate change from the ecological component as though we don't have to do anything differently as long as we can fix this one, like almost like an algebra problem where if we fix X being carbon, all the other pieces just kind of fall into place. And that's not really the, the way it works. Uh, you, you talk a little bit about this in your book, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit further uh, now and why that's so important for us to understand before we even try to tackle some of these issues. Yeah, absolutely. So it's possible to, to isolate one facet of a, of a complex problem in order to, to analyze that facet, but it's really important that when we do that, we understand that we're uh, we're, we're creating a fiction, right? The, the, the one facet of the problem never actually exists in isolation. That's just something we do sometimes to, to simplify things for us so that we can analyze it in the hopes that then we would take what we learned from anal the analysis and apply it back to, you know, the broader situation or the more complex problem. Uh, and that's, that's really not what's done uh, with the ecological crisis. And it's, it's not what's done systematically within the knowledge systems of our society. We're, we're used to thinking of scientific institutions, the existing scientific institutions, as, as very, very complex. Uh, but uh, an important part of the story is that, the, you know, these institutions, all the ones that, you know, exist on our planet, they co-evolved with the state. And that the state and other pyramidal structures, they're actually very bad at dealing with complexity. They actually, in order to exist, in order to thrive, they need to flatten reality constantly. So while the existing scientific institutions, they have like a whole lot of um, intellectual firepower, if you will, that they can bring to bear on, you know, running studies, running tests, uh, modeling and, and, and all the rest. And that's something that, you know, that could be useful. It's being done in a way that's systematically intended to, uh, to simplify, uh, to be reductionist, to, to flatten a complex reality. I'll, I'll get a little bit more specific about, about what I mean and, and, and what that looks like. Um, but just underscoring the idea that, that anytime we, we isolate one component of the whole in order to analyze it, if we forget that that's part of a larger whole, then we've actually created a falsehood and, and we're sort of dealing with a delusion rather than doing something that's, that could be, you know, intellectually useful to understanding the greater whole. So climate change as an isolated phenomenon doesn't exist. We could imagine it existing in, you know, some science fiction world, some, some alternate dimension, but our, on our planet, it doesn't exist. What's happening is a complex ecological crisis going back a long time, uh, going back centuries, not just um, one century and a couple decades that, you know, the effects of, of global warming have been, have been measurable. So the increase in atmospheric carbon and other greenhouse gases, that is without a doubt one aspect of this ecological crisis. But taking those things to, uh, to the side, to looking at uh, methane and carbon, only looking at greenhouse gases 
and the warming effect that they produce in order to understand the, the, the greater problem is creating a delusion, it's creating a falsehood. Because those things in the reality that we inhabit do not exist without uh, habitat destruction. They do not exist without land privatization. They do not exist without monocultures and plantation economies and slave labor and wage slavery and debt uh, foreclosures on houses, on farms, homelessness, industrial mass meat production. All of those things exist together. They, they're constantly existing together. And the thing is, it's not just out of naivete that, I mean, in the case of plenty of scientists, sure, you know, they'll, they'll reduce it to carbon because it's quantifiable, because you can, you know, run it through models. Like you can't, like the entire ecology, including human societies, which are a part of the, the, the ecology, are t way too complex to run through any computer modeling system that, that is, you know, even on the horizon of existing. So they reduce it to something quantifiable, like, you know, carbon and methane, so they can test it easier. And for some scientists, they're simply reproducing the way that they've been trained. They need to, you know, reduce uh, into a finite number of variables that can be tested. But the, you know, the the governments and the companies and the institutions that are funding their work definitely have have other interests that come into it. They don't want to look at the rest of that complexity because that requires questioning the concept of private property. That requires recognizing that all of the governing institutions on the planet right now have their origins in colonialism and that colonialism is an ongoing process that conditions what it means to be human. They don't want to look at different ideas of what it means to be human and they don't want to look at different ideas of what our place is and what our relationships should be on this planet because they want to keep capitalism going, they want to keep the state going, and both the state and capitalism are fundamentally ecocidal institutional complexes. So their, their very power, their social existence is based on preserving this problem. It's based on uh, making sure that the ecological crisis doesn't go away. So they have to reduce it. They have to look at one tiny little sliver of the problem and say, oh, well, you know, if we... If we can shift from fossil fuels to renewable fuels, but still on an industrial scale, then we can keep capitalism going. We can keep industrial production going. And that's what we need in order to run an extractivist economy, in order to continue generating trillions and trillions of, of dollars, in order to continue owning the world. And that's what they're interested in. And so the switch to renewable energies is, is bad for the planet. It's not good for the planet. It's, it's just an acceleration in many ways of the ecological crisis, but it's one way to allow them to keep their power without provoking a more apocalyptic scenario that would provoke state collapse. Because most states throughout history have brought about the conditions for their own collapse because they push people past uh, our breaking point and they push ecosystems past their breaking point. So most states do end up destroying themselves. So states today have an interest in switching to industrial scale green energy because it's that's the key to their survival. It's not the key to our survival. It's not the key to the survival of all the ecosystems and all of the other uh, living beings on the planet. It's the key to the survival of capitalism. So environmental movements around the world have been hijacked to protect capitalism from itself and to protect states from themselves rather than getting to the root of the ecological crisis. And so that's why these mainstream environmental movements and many of the scientists and certainly nearly all the politicians talk about climate change rather than the ecological crisis. And they talk about climate change as a future problem. They say, we have this many years. They say in 10 years or in 20 years, 
it'll be catastrophic or this will happen or, or this other thing will happen. Tens of millions of people uh, only talking about human beings now. And we're obviously not the only things that are worth talking about, but only talking about human beings now. Tens of millions of people are already dying every year because of the effects of the ecological crisis, including if you just want to reduce it to climate because of the effects of, of global heating. And but those are primarily people in the global south, people in colonized countries, uh, poor people uh, also in, in you know, the, the colonizing countries. Those are the people who are dying and, and it's happening every year and they don't talk about it because it's, it's very much a tell. It's very much a giveaway, how they're think, a giveaway, how they're thinking about this, that they talk about it as a future problem when the deaths and the extinctions have been going on for centuries. It's fun. You, you brought up this idea of the Green New Deal and how that's so necessary for capitalism to continue. And uh, this is something that I, I had been kind of thinking about the last couple of months as this idea that as we're watching kind of the limits of, you know, we always say like, this is the end of late stage capitalism. And we've been waiting for that day where it hits the wall, so to speak. And like, you know, okay, we don't have retirement plans anymore. They've been, you know, sucked into the stock market. We don't have fair healthcare, everything's overpriced and unaffordable. The average person can't afford rent anymore. There's not much left that exists that people have access to at this point. Like there's no more opportunity for easy growth as we saw from the early 19th, 20th century on through the stock market of those 10, 12% gains. So it's like, all right, we're, we're at the end of that rope. But the Green New Deal is basically a life raft for that because it's a whole new market. It's an excuse to build new, basically rebuild the world just to justify, you know, under the guise of saving the planet. But in reality, it's necessary for uh, the economy to have an excuse to continue new growth. I think you only mentioned it like in two sentences. And I was like, wow, I'm curious if you've thought about that any further, if you have any thoughts about either um, exposing or exploiting this reality of the state of capitalism. So I wrote some earlier pieces in, in which kind of sort of using um, world systems theory and like Braudel and Origi's model, capitalism needs like exponentials. And those have historically gone hand in hand with the conquest of new global territory into the system of capitalism, and then going back over that same territory to um, accelerate the exploitation, fine tune the exploitative processes, or, or basically take that up, exploitation up to a whole new level. And, you know, the planet's not getting any bigger. So like more like 10 years ago, I, I was, you know, thinking about the, the importance of like outer space colonization, colonization of the moon and Mars as like a needed terrain for capitalism. And that obviously hasn't been happening fast enough to rescue the economy, to create the foundation for, for new growth that's not simply based on financial speculation uh, that capitalism needs. And the Green New Deal, it really is um, the sort of set of technologies and strategies that allows capitalism to go back over the same territory and and exploit it all to a much higher degree than what was uh, previously in order to allow for that that economic in a terror seemed, com seemed completely saturated by by capitalist expansion and that definitely connects into um, you know the deployment of you know more advanced forms of, of biopower and surveillance uh, more sophisticated forms of exploitation just basically I just um, and we can uh, go into to some of the specifics more later if, if you're interested or, you know, the conversation in other, direct, in other directions. But, but to, to specifically, specifically to the Green New Deal, I'm just so flummoxed at how, um, like, leftists, I guess, just 
can can unironically like grab on to the phrase Green New Deal as as a good thing without any sense of history, because the, the New Deal was not you know, it was not the realization of of you know socialism in you know at least according to nineteenth century understandings of socialism the New Deal was the hot strategy for saving capitalism from anti capitalist movements that were starting to topple powerful capitalist states around the world. Like the New Deal had the support of the most forward-thinking and intelligent capitalists of, it, of its day. It was a capitalist program for saving capitalism from itself. And it didn't implement socialism. It let more crumbs fall down to the bottom. And it's just really amazing that people have forgotten that already. And now, you know, they're getting excited about the Green New Deal as though it's, you know, both ecological and socialist when it's, it's just, again, you know, saving capitalism from itself. I'm not surprised in a country where the term democratic socialist exists and it doesn't mean either of those things. So <laughs> take it as it is. Yeah, it, not not much, but I mean, it's the term is the term is used a, a little bit, at least in Northern Europe, and it's not not much better. So that's really distressing. Uh, and and I think it should underline for people how important it is to, to know our history, because we can just be fooled an infinite number of times when when we don't know our history. You use this, you know, uh, like when capitalism hits the wall. And I think that's something to be aware of and to be aware that that potentially opens new possibilities. And, you know, when, you know, after after decades of seeming changelessness, like it's it's okay to be excited about new possibilities to, uh, that are opening up. But, you know, we need to be sensitive of that. I mean, capitalism moves through our bodies. It exists in us. So, you know, the ones hitting the wall, that's that's us. And, and so that's a very violent process. And I also think that, that history should give a sense of um, uprisings against capitalism not being inevitable. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, revolutions don't just happen when unemployment goes beyond a certain number because uh, people, people don't rise up unless they have some idea that gives them hope that things can be different or unless they want revenge and, and they want to strike back at you know, at who they're blaming for their, their situation. So if they think that, that this way of living is natural, if they think that capitalism, that there's no alternative to capitalism, they're not going to try to take their revenge on capitalism to strike back at, at capitalists and capitalist institutions. Uh, and also if have any idea or, or memory or vision of a way that things could be better, then, you know, we're, we're just going to keep running into that wall and going to get squeezed pretty dry and it's not going to be pretty. It's important to be aware of opportunities for, for struggle and for revolt that are opening up. But I think we can't be like reductionist in, in like a materialist way about that. And we need to constantly remember what our job is, is to point out the, the institutions, structures. And this is also people who are responsible for this and, and all of which are vulnerable and also spread imaginaries and memories of other ways that we can live. In those circumstances, then I think we actually have uh, a pretty good pretty good cocktail. Your book starts with like a long history of resistance movements. And then it kind of dovetails into the resistance to like, what, what does it look like without the need to resist because there's a space and how people have lived and things like that. And then you kind of drift into what you're talking about now, this idea of utopia and why having something to live for or a vision of what to live for is so powerful because you need that to know well, if I'm going to fight, I, I want to know I'm fighting for something worth fighting for. While revenge can be satisfying, that doesn't put food on my table tomorrow. And I, I think having that, that utopia, that vision is 
incredibly powerful and something that we're, I think, largely lacking today. You know, if we look at like the alt-right and then we look at the left, the alt-right wants to go back to a very specific time in history. We don't really have that. You know, we have these examples here and there uh, across the globe. A lot of those are framed in a very historical land-based history that you know frames up why they live the way they do and especially for folks like myself on colonized land I, I don't have that and a lot of people don't have that so what what are we looking at and how do we connect with the land and how do we do all of these things that we want to do which can be really overwhelming for a lot of people that are just starting to realize that things need to change I, I do want to talk about the utopias a little bit later but uh, one of the things you talk about that ties this contextual sustainable, resilient, regenerative, whatever term you want to use, living, and the the challenges of things like the Green New Deal is this concept that you talk of blueprints and how those can be basically violence on spaces because it's this idea of, uh, like you were talking previously about this people, uh, academia, whatever it might be, being able to take these ideas of like policy wonking our way into fixing spaces, particularly how do we make urban and suburban spaces, quote unquote, most efficient? And again, through that reductionist process of thinking about carbon or whatever it might be, carbon emissions, how that erases both the history, the autonomy and the voice of the landscape. I, I think that's a really important, a really important point, a really important area of exploration. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to. I mean, it's a loaded question. Take, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I'm going to take a circuitous way of, of, of answering because you you brought up white supremacy and that's extremely important we can't understand the ecological crisis without talking about white supremacy i'm going to talk about one specific act at supremacy supremacy that has to do with memory and and that is what i want to contrast with um the this instrument the tool of of blueprints which uh as, as you know in the book i'm very much against so um memory i think one of the defining features of of whiteness is to a great extent a lack of memory outside of the state uh that that the process of creating white people is is to a certain extent completed when when they no longer remember themselves or understand themselves outside of the state in the anti-capitalist movements origin or or, or or centered in like Europe and 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 settler states, some of the most of the most important memories, some of the episodes, are the times that we meet a very fleeting glimpse of a new world, uh, of a very short-lived experience of a new world in the fires of revolt. So May Day, uh, Seattle General Strike, you know, all these all these different revolts that you know are are generally crushed within a month. Uh, but that that show us, you know, wow, it, it actually is possible. Something else is possible. Those movements, of course, are you know, were, none of those were were you know purely white movements. Like you know, speaking about like the Paris Commune, um, you know, like they they had participation of of you know colonized people who were living in France. Uh, you know, with with like you know the the Haymarket uprising, Lucy Parsons. Uh, you know, there were you know a lot of a lot of racialized people who were also participating. But those episodes, I think, have like a more 
like singular importance to, to white people because they're not complemented by this like richer, broader memory of, of other ways of existing. And that I think is one of the reasons why indigenous communities are so much at, at the forefront of the most intelligent and the deepest and the most of struggles of resistance against the e-crisis because of, of the, you know, the very central presence of memory of uh, other, ways of, other ways of relating with the world capitalism isn't necessary it's not uh you know creating like the totality of of one's identity so yeah so so memory and and the lack of memory is a very huge problem that within the institutions of whiteness is substituted by blueprints blueprints i think also are, are a tool that are very definitional definitional of um of whiteness, of settler society, of colonization. Uh, it's this idea that you can map out how reality should look and then impose that map on the terrain and force the terrain to conform to this, this abstracted map. And of course, the, the institutions that accompany the blueprint are, are extremely violent. You know, you have military and police who evict you know, whatever, whatever humans are living in the, uh, on the territory that the blueprint has to be applied to. You have the bulldozers, the tractors, the chainsaws that cut down and destroy, you know, all of the trees, all the other living things there, you know, giant uh, earth movers that, you know, can destroy the water table or really pollute the water table. So there's a great deal of violence that, that goes into a blueprint. Like a blueprint is not an innocent thing. Like it, it would be, it would be like a child's fanciful drawing if it weren't for these institutions of great violence that have the power to impose it on the territory. Hey there, it's Andy from the Porporal's Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. When we talk about this space, the um, particularly, I think, just because I, this is the area where I get a lot of questions and I don't really have a lot of answers, is around um, urban spaces and how do we, can we challenge this concept of blueprints as it exists today? Like, uh, do, do we deconstruct it or is this now considered part of that history? Or do you have any thoughts on that at all? Yeah, I, I think we can de- deconstruct it. I think it's, in fact, extremely vital to de- deconstruct it. I think we can look at a number of very important uh, examples today in, in which we see um, yeah, how, how that can be deconstructed or how we can change the world around us in, in a way that's following ethics and, and relationships that are diametrically opposed to, to blueprints. So I'll, I'll try to be brief. Informal cities, uh, you know, often referred to as, as slums or, or shanty towns, basically a, a huge chunk of the world population lives in informal cities. These are cities that were not given permission to exist by the, the state that putatively controls the territory. But there were people who, through you know, a variety of, of processes of displacement linked to colonialism, linked to uh, capitalism, uh, had to leave or chose to leave you know, their traditional land base and move to the city and build their own houses, build their own neighborhoods. And there's a huge difference in the quality of life 
between different uh, informal settlements or informal cities based largely on the degree of self-organization among neighbors. If neighbors are allowed to, and from the beginning choose to self-organize, then they create relationships of solidarity, they keep out the mafias, and in a situation of extreme scarcity of resources, because you know these are, these are people, these are communities to whom capitalism is, is denying all the basic necessities, all the resources that, that they would need to live, and, and you know the dominant states of the states of their area tend to try to make their lives impossible or threaten them with eviction. Despite those very real scarcities, they create a standard of living and a level of health and education and community much, much higher than they would be able to otherwise and much higher than what you see in the slums where they, you know, they are dominated by, by mafias, which are you know, basically capitalist enterprises you know, of, of an informal economy that, that plug those people into global flows of, of commodities, you know, whether those are drugs or you know, all, all sorts of other hyper-exploitative industries. So self-organized cities, that's one example that's extremely relevant because more than a billion people on the planet uh, live in them. Another example with a smaller scale, but that might be closer closer to hand for, for people living in countries, you know, where the power of the state and legality and so forth uh, means that, you know, informal settlements like that uh, either don't exist or, you know, they're, they're very much uh, under the radar. Squatters movements, uh, you know, whether they, they take that name and identify with that specific history and culture or not. People who, you know, they, they exist, you know, from Chicago to Barcelona, people who take over vacant lots to make gardens, people who um, take over, you know, vacant units uh, in order to house themselves freely. And, and so these are things where you, you have like a sort of networked effect, right? In both the informal city at this huge scale and at a smaller scale in, in these uh, squatting movements in the global north, you, you don't have an architect, you don't have an institution who goes in there and says, okay, here's the plan. You actually have a superior form of intelligence, which is, you know, decentralized uh, uh, intelligence, you know, often sort of um, demonized as, you know, like the hive mind and, you know, your sort of standard fair science fiction, but, but which is shown to actually produce superior solutions much faster and to be able to engage much more easily with, with complexity. So, you know, you'll have one group of neighbors who takes over one vacant lot and then, you know, a few streets down, maybe another group of neighbors who take over another vacant lot. And then once they realize that they're both doing something similar, they coordinate, they communicate, they share resources, and they create something that's greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, and, and likewise, you know, in these informal cities, it's not just, you know, people working individualistically, making their own houses, you know, they end up making, you know, roads, uh, systems of transportation, uh, sewage systems, water, electricity, all of that. They, they coordinate and they create these networks, even though at no point does anyone have that bird's eye view where they have, you know, the piece of paper that, that says this is the design that everyone's going to follow. But everyone kind of horizontally from their own perspective, from this very embodied perspective, they send out feelers, they communicate, they work out solutions, they smooth out conflicts, and they, and they keep going. And so the intelligence, it's not located within one architect, it's not located within institutions. The intelligence is actually spread out through the network itself. And so the territory itself is what's intelligent, and the territory itself is what's dynamic, what's moving, and what's creating itself. So the, another, another very, very large-scale example, there's... There's, there's many, many cases of this around the world and, and throughout history, but one that's, um, you know, started to, to, you know, get to the attention of, you know, the sort of institutions of official knowledge or whatnot, is that the Amazon rainforest is, is not, you know, it didn't just, um, you know, grow there by itself. It's, it's a, an environment, it's a habitat, uh, it's a territory that has been constantly shaped 
and completely transformed by human communities, by indigenous communities, uh, around 500 uh, different indigenous peoples over thousands of years. Uh, and it would look nothing like what it looks like today. It wouldn't have the biodiversity that it has today uh, if it weren't for this constant human involvement that, that very much has been a form of gardening, right? So, so, you know, like forget any sort of like bullshit Western racist idea of, you know, humans in a state of nature just sort of like, you know, bumbling around without consciousness. Like there's a great deal of intelligence there that, that far exceeds the intelligence of any official scientific institution regarding the, the biologies and the ecosystems and, and the interacting webs of life that exist in the Amazon. So that intelligence, it exists among those, those hundreds of, of, of different indigenous peoples who very, very intelligently have been intervening, participating, shaping relationships to create a very, very beneficial habitat, not just for themselves, but for thousands of other, of other species of, of, of life. No one ever had the blueprint. And it would have been impossible to, to design something that complex with a blueprint because a blueprint forces us to simplify. A blueprint is reductionist. An absurdly humble example next to that, like, like really just a ridiculous example that I'm only proffering because like, I, can, I can talk about it because I, you know, I know about it personally. And something that, that's on a much, much smaller scale, which might be easier for other people out there like myself to, to understand because you know, I, I can't like, you know, you know, look out my window at this... You know, this um, totally state and capitalist dominated landscape and imagine embarking on a project like those, those, you know, various peoples embarked on thousands and thousands of years ago to, to basically create the Amazon rainforest. I can't imagine that if you can imagine that, you know, congratulations, but I'm sure a lot of your listeners out, out there also can't imagine doing something at that scale. So I, in the neighborhood where I live, uh, I have this little garden. Uh, it's like some unused land next to the neighborhood it's really, really destroyed by uh, years of, of conventional agriculture. Like the soil is really compacted, desertified. And the place where I live in central Catalonia, that's, that's one of the effects of the ecological crisis that we're facing. Uh, if we don't do something intelligent and, and starting now, this territory where we live will, will become a desert. And there are different kinds of deserts. There are deserts that flourish and bloom and that are the home to, to you know, so many different you know, habitats and, and species and all the rest. And, and there, are, you know, there are deserts that are you know, maybe better viewed as, as, as wastelands where, where life is very, very difficult for its inhabitants or former inhabitants. And if we keep going in the direction we're going, it's going to be the latter kind of, um, kind of desert. So I occupy a little, a little plot of land. Um, a couple neighbors occupy like another little plot right next to me. Fortunately, some of the old folks here, you know, they also like gardening. So there's some social support for it. In times when they've tried to kick us out, we can call on that social support to, to resist a little bit more effectively. And because at the moment, I mean, industrial agriculture has failed. It's a failed system. And it's, it's pretty sad that a lot of people haven't recognized yet, that yet, but it's, it's a totally failed system. So capitalism doesn't have a way to profit off of this little patch of land at the moment, which, you know, gives us some breathing room. But despite that, you know, laws still exist and need to be respected and whatnot. And without this social support that we're able to cultivate by just trying to be good neighbors with people that we don't have affinity with, people that we would have a lot of disagreements with, a lot of cultural dis uh, distance with, but we have some shared interests in that we live in this this very lower class neighborhood together. It's a neighborhood that's constantly threatened by material scarcity. And, uh, you know, the city government has for a long time wanted to demolish the entire neighborhood. So we can like look for those common interests in order to create community. And when I say community, people should imagine something that's disgusting, full of conflict, horrible, never utopian, sometimes fun, but most of the time, most of the times it's like a pain in the ass. If people 
hear the word community and they imagine like a group of friends who like each other, then I, I think I think they need to pull their heads out of their asses. I think <laughs> that the concept uh, of community yes. has so like it's just I, I I think we like suffered so like we I don't know whoever wants to identify with that we like you know you're 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 welcome to it but maybe I don't know people who grew up in like settlers who grew up in settler states or white people or, or I don't know you know what what group is this we but there is this we that has so little contact with like a real community as like a shared network of relationships that makes life possible that we imagine like this this beautiful thing and hell it would be a lot more beautiful than capitalism because it wouldn't you know, exploit us systematically, it wouldn't make life impossible, but it's still full of conflicts. And it's, it's, I've been, you know, trying to convince friends of this. It's not a community unless there are a lot of people in it that you hate and you still remain a part of it because it has that level of meaning and importance for you. So, so that's the kind of community that we have here. It's full of conflicts, it's full of bullshit, but we have these shared interests, we create these relationships. And so just barely we're able to, to hold on and so anyways, in this very, very small scale example, which nonetheless is, is like quite difficult given our means, you know, we're trying to implement some forms of gardening that help restore the land, that help adapt to a climate that is becoming much drier and much hotter. And, and we're looking for methods, some methods that, you know, have been developed traditionally, like, you know, here, like around the Mediterranean basin or methods that have been developed in other parts of the world in order to simultaneously help heal the land, make the shift towards a, what will locally be like, uh, and is already starting to be a hotter and drier climate. And also as much as possible, you know, feed ourselves. You know, there's also medicinal herbs there for, you know, like a, a more holistic understanding of health. And so that's like a much, much smaller uh, scale example, but one that's hopefully useful for, for a lot of listeners. And then, sorry, I'm going on so long. The, the final example that I want to talk about is um, I'm, I'm just going to make uh, a reference to, to insurrectionary anarchism, or at least certain, certain historical experiences of it, which is, it's, it's a, I don't know, a branch of anarchism, if you will, or, or like a certain moment of anarchism that um, has a lot of strengths and weaknesses, but but one of the things that I think it's done a good job of, at least in certain moments, is to try to create this emphasis of, of doing strategy, of thinking constantly about revolutionary strategy, but never assuming that we need a strategy that we have to control the entire movement and get everyone else to adopt. So it's about moving within a chaotic situation. It's about moving from within this network horizontally rather than creating the party, whether or not we call it a party, that uh, you know either forces everyone to join it and follow its dictates or, you know, eliminates and neutralizes everyone else. And, and that's, that's the blueprinting method within our social movements. And it's destroyed powerful social struggles again and again and again, uh, whether it's, you know, by, by, you know, like left-wing political parties or, you know, more sort of crypto authoritarian formations. Uh, and, and so I think in certain places, at least, uh, insurrectionary anarchism has done at the very least, an interesting job of teaching us to think about embodied strategy within within these more chaotic networks where we never will be able to control everyone and we don't want to control everyone. What we want to do are take actions that will have an effect beyond us and maybe encourage other people to go you know, in, in a more subversive or transformative direction, but at the very least enable us to move within these, these greater bodies that we're not trying to control. Yeah, so first I do want to say I definitely appreciate you being candid about the state of community. I find especially people that don't do a lot of actual in-person organizing, there's uh, a lot of expectation that community means like people that think like you, and that's just simply not 
realistic, uh, at least for the vast majority of us. And honestly, I, I don't want other people that think like me. I think I'm too much already. Like I could use less of me in my life. So, <laughs> so I, I truly appreciate that. And I think it is something that people need to really start thinking about is uh, if we believe in this idea of, you know, uh, this podcast has been focused on this concept of like complex system science as a framework for how ecology should exist and how we should organize. And if you believe in that, in that, you know, complexity and diversity is a good thing. That also means politically speaking, diversity is a good thing. Obviously, that doesn't mean everything, but recognizing yeah. that people should have different opinions. And sometimes that will become more the sum of those different opinions, much like any other complex system is really important. And I think it's really important to push back on that concept. So you, you talked about a bunch of different things, and I, I do want to kind of go through them a little bit. You talked about this idea of kind of deconstructing whiteness and why that's so important. That's something that I've always had kind of an interest in, uh, in terms of how do, we, how do we negate whiteness and how do we pair this idea of being a colonist on lands that aren't ours and also learning to think about ourselves as not white people, but tying ourselves into a historical culture that has existed. And it's okay to move away from that, but also uh, contextualizing things within that framework. So uh, whether it's, you know, recognizing how your ancestors lived and ate and stewarded a landscape someplace previous to industrialism and capitalism, whichever one happened to come first where you lived. I think it's really important for us to, I guess, find common ground more so than anything with, uh, especially in, in colonized states, with the indigenous people of recognizing what we have lost as well as what they have lost. I, I think that comes together a little bit better when you understand what you have lost as well. And mm. I, I think that plays into a lot of the, the pieces that you're talking about, these idea of like, how do we organize and how do we be more flexible with not just the people that we we live around, but also the landscape, just like you're talking about, you know, you're living in a, a region that has always been dry, but is becoming more dry. And, you know, the Dehesa has a long and complex history, but, you know, that history can change and should change because even if I'm going to do the thing you told me not to do, but if you were to take climate change yeah. and have it happen without the ecological destruction, those landscapes would change anyway, and the, the people who had lived there for thousands of years would change with it. And we have seen that historically, yeah. um, like with the Turkana in Africa, going from basically rainforest to desert conditions over the course of 500 years. They evolved with those conditions and continued to live sustainably and resiliently in that landscape. That's a testament to the fact that humans can do this. We can survive, and uh, we're incredibly yeah. adept at that which I think ties into that. The, the last thing I did want to talk about was the utopian component and why that's important. And you not only paint a beautiful picture of what you would imagine the landscape where you are a few decades from now to look like, but also highlight the point that the utopia isn't just your utopia. It's a collection of utopias and, and bringing people into what that looks like and incorporating different perspectives on that. When you think about utopia, why do you why do you think it's so important? And like, what what should we be doing on? And I'll use the broad term left to to utilize the concept of utopia. Um, it's it's important for so many reasons. It's important because, especially when if we're not just thinking about utopia as like you know oh, this would be like you know my favorite like you know eating ice cream every day and you know riding bicycles because we really like bicycles or whatever but actually thinking about what do other people want or at the very least what would they be okay with for folks who you know currently can't really imagine themselves outside of, of capitalism 
what do they need? How could it actually go down? That's, that's a very important exercise. It's important to the theoretical level because it, it's a way of like testing our theories. And it's really important because it can, it can fine tune our strategies to think of like, what kind of connections, what kind of relationships we need to be building and strengthening now. So when you're actually looking at like, okay, well, how would we actually survive without industrially produced or like industrial scale electricity and without most of our food coming from the other side of the globe? And then you, you, you start to take stock of what kind of resources and relationships you have at least the beginnings of, what you don't, what you don't have uh, at all. And, and so it's not a blueprint, it's, it's, you know, more of an imaginative exercise, you know, it can you know, be like a role playing, or it can be just like something that you, you, you know, you do every now and then in, in idle moments. So it really strengthens our strategy and, and I think tests our, our theory and gets us to move away from theoretical dogmatism towards more robust uh, theories like related and uh, rooted in actual needs. I think it's, it's also important because of what I mentioned before about how people are unlikely to revolt if one or the other, both, both is, is best, you know, if they have, you know, if they can conceive of revenge or if they can conceive of, of like making a new world, you're never going to have consensus on a blueprint, but because like these imagined utopias can be much more complex and, and you're never saying that this is the way it has to be. You're just saying this is the way that it could be. Then that gives people more strength to revolt. Uh, and that's, that's obviously very, very important. And then to name one more thing, it's extremely important for, for mental health. Uh, mental health is, is taking such a huge toll in, in our struggles and on society at large. That's perfectly normal. Like, you know, we're, you know, sort of um, watching the planet die. Like we can, we can yeah, be sad about it. <laughs> massive, massive death. And, you know, a lot of like we've had large revolts over the last years, but they keep getting defeated or they don't, they don't go as far as they need to. They don't accomplish what they need to. We've had a lot of people die and, you know, get put in prison, people that, you know, we, we might know personally. Uh, and that's all extremely depressing. And also capitalism is just ugly. Like we're forced to live very often in, in like these very ugly places, ugly realities, ugly houses, ugly cities. Speaking personally, like it's been such like such a relief for me or like such a, I don't know, like um, a release valve. Like I started thinking about a lot of uh, things that, um, that got in this book when I was still living in Barcelona. So like in, in a large, very dense, cramped city. And just being able to like look out my window on the city streets and then just like change things and see, well, let's see. Okay. So it wouldn't, we'd rip up the asphalt. We plant fruit and nut trees and this street would be wide enough and this other street, then, you know, it'll just, we'll just have like bicycle and footpaths. Uh, you know, we'll be able to have chickens here. How will, how will we do, you know, electricity? How will we do like wastewater and stuff like that? And then just like look out and on this capitalist misery and like see like people like, happy and sometimes angry and sad, but still like, you know, actually empowered to like create the world that they live in and to like heal themselves and heal this world. It, it just felt comparatively good. It was <laughs> very therapeutic in a way that, you know, doesn't, you know, put you to sleep, but actually uh, sharpens you for the fight. That's awesome. I mean, I think um, when I start to think about like how things would look, my brain kind of goes the opposite direction and instead starts thinking about like, well, I don't know how to do this and I don't know how to do that. And I think that speaks to, I think the capitalist mindset of like, again, isolating each of these pieces as though if you put a collective of people together, somebody is going to know enough or to collectively people will know enough to figure yeah. something out. And it's really hard to pull yourself out of that kind of mindset. Mm -hmm.
I guess I'll ask you this last one. It's kind of outside of the scope of the conversation we've had, but it is something you brought up in the book and it tied more into the rebellion component of it. And you talk specifically about this framework that security consultants use when it comes to radicals. And I think this is important for me as I guess a, a podcaster with an audience uh, to start thinking about uh, where I, I guess I qualify as media now. And I think it's really important to think about as we continue to consume media, especially on the left, as it's become a bigger and bigger voice because of ease of access to making podcasts and things like that. So I'm curious about this and how uh, this might impact what you are interested in, who you listen to, um, and various you know, resources of media, and uh, especially in, in the realm of ecological resistance. Yeah, so uh, I, just to, to clarify um, for for listeners, just to make sure that like the they understand kind of that that framework that you mentioned. So that's in the book. I'm quoting counterinsurgency consultants, so, so yes, private sorry. consultants yes. that make a lot of money helping governments defeat social movements. And and I think there's a lot of really really relevant things that we can that we can draw out of that framework. These consultants who are interested in counterinsurgency. They identify the realists as as the most important ones to reach out to because those are the ones who who can be brought on board with who are these consultants working for? They're working for governments, they're working for major corporations, they're working for the institutions that are destroying the planet. So they identify realists as the ones who can be employed or manipulated into helping them continue to destroy the planet. Uh, so so I think we need to recognize the irony in this identification of realists. And people like that often identify themselves as realists when in fact they're the most naive, they're the most unintelligent or, or unaware of the situation that they're in. So, you know, the, the opportunists, of course, they can be, they, you know, sell out easily. This, this sort of, um, these sort of kind of like, I don't know, like hippie-ish idealists. I, th I think that like the lesson there is like the importance of a structural analysis because, you know, they want a better world, but they can be fooled into thinking of, states and corporations as people who also need to have their needs met. So basically the, the counterinsurgency consultants are like, just get them to think about the needs of, uh, of, you know, of their opponents. And so then they'll, you know, they'll make compromises and stuff like that. And, and that, that underscores how we need structural analysis. Like we need analysis at a human scale, but we also need structural analysis or we're going to get tricked into promoting the needs of the very institutions that are, that are destroying the planet, which is what things like the Green New Deal are all about. It's about this halfway point where, you know, the big companies can also get their needs met. And, and so the, um, the, the objective of all this is to isolate the radicals. So in fact, the radicals are the most realistic ones there, but you know, people who think of themselves as realists are easy to fool into, into basically you know, turning into their own worst enemies or, or supporting the system that they, that they think that they're fighting. So that's, that's one counterinsurgency framework. It's, it's a fairly popular one, but this underscores another important point there's often this idea that governments aren't taking the ecological crisis seriously. And that's bullshit. They've actually been taking the ecological crisis seriously for a very long time, uh, but they're taking it seriously at the level of uh, a security issue. So even back in the 1960s, the US government uh, recommended spending more time studying climate change because of the security implications, because it potentially threatened their power. So they haven't been doing a whole lot to you know, stop all the dying and you know, stop the you know the huge changes to to weather and climate and habitat loss and all the rest. But they've spent more than half a century uh, 
taking this seriously as a security threat. And NATO also has has dedicated a lot of a lot of attention to the ecological crisis, to climate change. So they do take it seriously, but you know, not in any reason. They take it ser- take it seriously in the sense they're afraid of of losing their power. Yeah, um, basically reactionary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As as somebody that you know, I think has a voice in especially the eco socialist eco left movement. I'm curious about your thoughts about uh, how do we engage with the various actors that are, I guess, representative of these. Uh, you know, I don't want to paint anyone as one of these particular categories of people, but how how do you think about where you consume media and things like that that are related to ecological resistance? Let's say I don't necessarily have have like recommendations for for media because I'm sort of very inconsistent. Like I jump around. Like I don't uh, um, have you know certain certain media that you know I always that I always go to. Um, so I I very much like it when you know people people share articles or or interviews that that they've appreciated or books that they've appreciated. So yeah, that's uh, that doesn't really help work as as a recommendation. I guess just like you know have have smart friends and <laughs> and listen to their, their recommendations. Um, as as far as like interacting with people, kind of like within that framework, I think it's really important instead of you know dividing people into these personality types. So, so personally, I actually take like a, a, a kind of critical historical view of the left. I think it's important to kind of make these distinctions between above and, and below, uh, specifically in reference to the, the structures and organizations and institutions that have historically made up the left and that historically have been very important in helping capitalism and helping the state redirect revolt back in a way that, that, that recuperates power and, and that kind of, you know, smooths out social conflict. So I think it's important to, to kind of avoid the fault lines that, that, you know, basically get us isolated as radicals and to try to make many, many relationships with um, the base of a lot of these organizations that end up, you know, disarming movements, you know, whether that's like, you know, labor unions or groups like Extinction Rebellion, there's like actually a huge difference between the people who end up leading those organizations and, you know, the, the base that make up those organizations. And really interesting things happen when the base rebels and, you know, either leave the organization entirely or, or lead it in a new in a new direction, because you tend to find at the head of those organizations, you know, these you know naive fools who consider themselves realists, or more often than not opportunists. Opportunists, and at the base of those organizations, there's a lot of sincere people who, you know, don't see other options for resistance, and and you know actually do want you know they want to actually address the problems that they're facing, whether whether or not they understand those problems in you know in in a deep way or a more superficial way. So I think it's really important to not fall into any one place on the political map, to not be easily corralled and identified but you know to make friendships and make affinities and make complicities with with people all over the map in order to kind of like sabotage or gum up the the typical institutional frameworks that keep everything under control that keep you know the blueprint of you know appropriate political action uh functional it's all about diversity so for folks that want to get your book where can they find it uh, they can get it from uh, Pluto Press and uh, hopefully also a lot of uh, radical bookstores or you know, even more normal bookstores uh, in the area. And one thing about that, all of the um, all of the author royalties from this book go to uh, some of the projects in, in the Global South. 
uh, that that helped out with with interviews and and that you know, are themselves like really really great struggles, parts of really important struggles uh, against colonialism, against uh, the destruction of the environment. So from from uh, Brazil to Indonesia. Awesome. So yeah. so yeah, so that yeah, also a way to support those struggles. The collection of interviews is unreal. The content in general, not to blow smoke, but the sources that you have and the the content that's covered, it just is like mind boggling how much information is in that book. So I definitely, definitely recommend it. Peter, this has been fantastic. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for uh, for inviting me.